All right, Mark's gospel. And um, we'll just read verse 1, and then we'll divert from that for a little bit. And Lord willing, we'll come back to it a little later. But you notice he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, it says, nobody knows with absolute certainty except God himself who wrote this gospel. But everybody attests to the fact that Mark, or the guy we know as John Mark, wrote this gospel. Um, He was an interesting guy in the New Testament. Um, He was, Acts 12, 12 says he was the son of Mary. And uh, Colossians 4.10 says he was a cousin of Barnabas. So he was a significant figure in the New Testament as far as that goes. Um, We also feel that he probably had some significant contact with Jesus' ministry. Um, It's not known for sure that he did that, but there's an interesting there's an interesting thing here in the gospel that I, I, I find fascinating. If you look, turn over to Mark chapter 14. Now, of course, you're, you're getting near the end of, of Mark's gospel, so you know you're getting into the account concerning the crucifixion and so on and the passion of Christ. And in verse 41, you know, there there. Jesus is praying, and he's trying to get his disciples to stay awake for him, and and they're having trouble. They're falling asleep. And so you see in verse 42, he says, Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came and, of course, uh, betrayed Jesus. And um, in verse 44, he says, Whoever I kiss, he's the one, and he did, and they grabbed him, and and um, then you come down to verse 48, and Jesus said, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then they all forsook him and fled. Verse 51, now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And then verse 53 says, and they led Jesus away to the high priest. Now, if you're following that narrative, you know, you, you look at that and you say, well, actually, if, if you just read this uh, straight through and, and skip verses 51 and 52, it flows rather smoothly. They all forsook Jesus and fled, and then they led Jesus away to the high priest. But you look at verses 51 and 52, and you see this little, two verses, this little account about this guy who has no name, a certain, a certain young man, and obviously Mark would have been at this time a very young fellow. Many think that this was a little little autobiographical uh, snatch that he put in there, not identifying himself, but he, that he may very well have been present when this event occurred. I find that pretty fascinating. Because otherwise, I mean, what's the point? Why is this in here? Does it add anything 
to the account? Not really. That's why I said if you just skip over that and you read from verse 50 and begin with verse 53, you know, it, you don't miss a beat. You just, it flows very, very smoothly. But you got this little account about this, this guy, this young man who is obviously present during this occasion. So he had some firsthand information, apparently, about the Lord Jesus and what took place on, on this particular occasion. We don't know that for sure. It just seems like an unusual thing. Now, if you look over in Acts chapter 12, one of the things we learn is that Mark was a, a resident of Jerusalem. So he was close to the, all the activities going on during the ministry of, of uh, Jesus during that time, but more so with the apostles. If we look in verse 12, uh, it sa- and, and notice verses 12 through 17, let's read those. It says, so when he had considered this, that is Peter, he came to the house of Mary. Now what was going on here was, Peter had just been delivered by God from prison in a miraculous fashion. And when he was released, guess where he went? He went to John Mark's house. Of all the places he could have gone. So Mark had a personal acquaintance with the Lord Jesus. A very intimate one. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. We had just said, you're crazy. You're nuts. You're beside yourself, Rhoda. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now, there's a few little clues, little interesting things out of this passage that tell us some things about John Mark. I mean, first one is, of course, that Peter went immediately to his house. It apparently was a common place, a regular place for Christians to meet. Uh, after the resurrection of Christ and in the early days of the church. And they were assembled there praying. So what else does that tell us? Well, that John knew Peter on a very personal basis. And that's going to tell us something that else that others feel about Mark and his relationship with Peter and his recording of this gospel. But... To move on from there, to show the familiarity, Rhoda recognized 
Peter's voice. This wasn't a one-time occasion. It was evidently a regular occurrence, and this was, you know, Peter was going to people that he regularly fellowshiped with, people that he knew well, and that would have included John Mark. Um, And then another thing that he says here is, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. Well, if Peter was relaying this message to this group of believers at Mary's house, and assuming that John Mark was there, then I think it's fair to assume that John Mark must have known James and the brethren that he's talking about, wherever they were. Go notify them and let them know about my deliverance. And then Peter leaves them. So all of this taken together leaves us with a lot of clues that simply tell us that John Mark had, and by the way, we could just as easily call him John. We don't do that. We commonly call him Mark. Um... John, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll save that. But, you know, you notice it says John, whose surname was Mark. But we'll, we'll come to that. Um, because I'll just deal with it. <laughs> okay. John was his Hebrew name. Mark was his Gentile name. It was a Latin word. And it was very, very common name, just like it is for you and I today. A lot of people are named Mark, but a lot of people are named John too. Well, just as it was in in the Lord's day, John was a very common Hebrew name. So we find this interesting thing about John Mark is that he had this ability to relate both to the Hebrew world and culture and language, as well as to the Gentile world, and as we'll find out in a little bit, culture and language. Not like so many of us today who are stuck with one language. He was bilingual, as we find many people in other parts of the world are, and I'm just amazed that all these people in Europe and and particularly in Africa can learn so many languages and so many dialects uh, with such seeming ease to me. Uh, I wish I had that facility to do that. I feel really good about getting some English down really well. And, um, well, anyway, so much for that. So, um, Mark was not his last name. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't even connect his name that way. We do you'll find that in all the New Testament accounts, it says John, whose surname was Mark. Now, I know that for you and I, surname typically means our last name, but it doesn't have to mean that way by dictionary definition. It can also mean a name taken up by someone um, because of their affiliations with something, or it's a nickname applied to somebody. Like we could say, 
you know, John the Hot Rod over here. <laughs> he does have a Mustang. <laughs> you know, we give appellations like that to people, and it helps us further identify sometimes, or it just serves as a nickname for someone. Well, Mark's surname helped identify him in the Gentile world. And it was common again for Hebrews, Jewish people, to take on two names like that. One they used in their Jewish surroundings and a Gentile name that they used in their Gentile surroundings. It was not, in other words, such an unusual uh, thing to have happen. So what else happened here? Well, in this account here in Acts chapter 12, because of the group of people that were meeting in this home and the, and the prayer service that was going on there, um, and Peter's you know, immediate attention to go to this particular house probably lets us know that Peter was probably accustomed to meeting there and also probably accustomed to teaching and or preaching in this situation. So all of that lets us know then that Mark was quite familiar with Peter's teaching and preaching regarding the gospel. He, 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 he had a great familiarization because of his association with Peter. And a lot of people, a lot of scholars feel that Mark you know, used Peter as his source, as it were, because he heard these messages from Peter as his source for where he got his information regarding the gospel. Now, of course, we understand that there are there is the human side of where we get our information, and then there is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and guiding uh, uh, the New Testament writers to record the things that they, that they did so that it was accurate and without error. And they gave the very words that, that God wanted them to record and yet used each individual according to their own personality. And so he did with, with Peter as well and with Mark. Um, I mentioned earlier that some hold that, that Mark was the in, interpreter of Peter. And if you look at the early church fathers, they use that phrase, interpreter of Peter. Now, whatever that means, I'm not too sure. Um, I don't know that they know for sure. It might mean that he simply... Um, transferred or continued on the teachings of Peter as he got them from him. So you got this strange mixture. You know, you have this all this personal uh, acquaintance with Peter and his ministry and his preaching and teaching, but yet if this account back there in, in, in uh, Mark that we just read about this certain young man who was present at the time Jesus was arrested, you know, he did have some apparently some personal acquaintance with Jesus too. Maybe, if that's the case. Well, anyway, coming back to Mark again, another important question that really helps you to understand a gospel writer and their message is, 
Where did they write this letter at? Where were they when they penned these words? And here, many find that through clues given in this gospel, that they think that he was probably in Rome, or at least in Gentile surroundings. Now, the case, I think, can be made that he was in Rome, but nonetheless, Gentile surroundings. Why would we say that? Well, because in this gospel, there is a significant use of Latin terms. You didn't use Latin very much, and you probably wouldn't have needed to use it at all if he was writing in Jerusalem. And he had Jewish people as his audience, like Matthew did. But if he had Gentiles as his audience, and he used certain peculiar terms in Latin, then we could understand why those things would appear in this gospel. Look over at at chapter 6 and verse 27. It says there, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison. Of course, that's talking about John the Baptist. But the word for executioner there uh, is a Latin word. Um, It's where we get our word speculator. (laughs) Sounds funny, but that's what the Latin word means, uh, an executioner. Uh, It has to do with a, uh, a spy or a scout Um, who was in the service of some high government official, like here, uh, the governor, and uh, which would happen to be Herod. And, you know, you're there at his service. You do whatever. So they often served as executioners as well. So Mark uses this term uh, in his Gentile context to talk about a speculator, an executioner. Look over in chapter 7 and verse 4. Just a little, little odd things. You wonder, why do they do this? The little word pitchers. There in verse 4. Talking about the uh, customs of the, of the Pharisees and, and the Jews. Uh, by the way... This is another example right here, having to explain Jewish customs for his audience so they would know what he was talking about. But that little word pictures um, is a a Latin word as, as well. And then over in chapter 12 and verse 14, you find another word over there uh, where we get our English word census. Mark chapter 12 and verse 14. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we remember from Luke's account about the census. And you know that the newer translations often talk about it being a time of registration, a census. So in other words, the point being is that a census was a time when they didn't just count people 
although that was involved, but it had to do with going and paying a tax all at the same time. So here he uses this Latin word um, to describe what was going on. And of course, a Gentile, knowing Latin, would have understood exactly what Mark was talking about. Over in chapter chapter 15 and verse 15, you see another instance of, of this. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd. Now the word gratify, the, the phrase rather I should say, gratify the crowd um, is not technically in Latin, but it's a common expression found in Latin. So the point is, is that behind this expression is a Latin phrase um, that means that very thing. It means to, to do whatever you need to do to satisfy somebody's complaint. And of course, that's exactly what was going on here. They wanted to gratify the crowd or take care of the Jews' complaint against this man, Jesus. And so they were going to crucify him. Um, that made it clear to Mark's Jewish readers just exactly what was going on. Turn over with me one, well, a couple more. To, well, yeah, at least a couple. Mark chapter 15 and verse 16. I guess that's just a few verses down, isn't it? What's the next verse? How about that? Verse 16. Well, actually, in verse 15, the word Pilate, of course, is, is a Latin name itself. And then in verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. What's the Praetorium? Well, you probably have a marginal note in your Bible that says the governor's headquarters. And that would be correct. More explicitly, it was the camp or the headquarters for a Roman army. That's what it really, really meant. But if they were occupying a place and they were in a city, then they obviously would build a building or, or occupy a building, a palace, as it were, and set up their headquarters there. So that's what the praetorium is here. The Roman army, which had invaded Jerusalem, was occupying the city, had taken up residence in some building, that, and Mark is using this Latin word for his Roman readers so they would understand exactly what he's talking about. They went to the headquarters of the Roman army. And that, then, of course, that's where all the rest of these things took place. And then finally, we won't turn there, uh, but simply to mention one that's used throughout the, the gospel, and that's the word centurion. And that, that's simply the Latin word for a Roman soldier, a centurion. And we're familiar with that one. So these, this, these generous use of these, all these Latin names tell us something about who Mark's target audience was. Who's he writing to? Um, he also explained Jewish customs and terms. I will only look at a couple, just to set for sake of time. But look at back, turn back just a couple pages to Mark chapter 12. And um, verse 42 Now, you may have, 
you may have a marginal note like I do as well. It says there, one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. And if you look in your margin, it'll tell you about a quadrant was a Roman coin. Well, that helped the Roman reader to know what the value of the two mites was so they would understand. Our translators frequently do the same thing. Like in the King James Bible, you have uh, minas, you have pounds, you have penny, and so forth. And then over one more, let's look at one more in chapter 14 and verse 12. Notice this very simple expression. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. You know, if Mark was writing to Jews, do you think he needed to tell them that? Of course not. I mean, that was, that was very well known to a Jew. You didn't need to tell them that's the day we killed the Passover lamb. But to just a common, ordinary Roman citizen, you know, living in his uh, tenement building who was a baker or an iron worker or, you know, a vintner, you know, or whatever kind of job he had, he didn't know about all these kinds of things. So Mark explains it. And you have several of those in this, in this gospel, explaining things to them, what Jewish customs uh, were all about. And then you also have translations. Translations of Aramaic words. Look over at, uh, look back, I think, let me see if this is the one I want for sure. Yeah. Mark chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going here because I just like to say this name. <laughs> Cracks me up. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So you see where he says, that is? He's translating this word for his Latin readers so they'll know what it means. Um, turn just a couple pages over to five, chapter 5, verse 17. Excuse me, verse 41. Chapter 5, verse 41, where he says... Um, he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kumi, which is translated, little child, I say to you, arise. John had no expectations of his Roman readers understanding what Talitha, kumi, means. So he translated it for him. And there are other expressions just like this in this gospel to tell them exactly what he was talking about. But there's an interesting one also, I think, over in, um, where is it? 1521, Mark chapter 15. That kind of helps us to see the potential for Mark having written this 
in Rome. If you look at verse 21, regarding the crucifixion of Christ and the carrying of the cross, it says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, the emphasis we want to look at is not on Simon the Cyrenian, but on Alexander and Rufus. Look over in Romans chapter 16. You might remember in Romans 16, which is the last chapter of the book, the Apostle Paul is relating a lot of personal things to the people he's writing to in Rome. And of all the people he mentions, in verse 13, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Paul had a very intimate acquaintance with this man, Rufus, and don't know. But here's a guy in Rome that Paul knew that Mark, mentioning Alexander and Rufus, assumed that his readers would know exactly who they were too. And, of course, he was, Rufus was a member of the church in Rome. So that just lends credence, further credence, I should say, to nailing down just where this letter was written. You know, all of these things taken together then help us appreciate what Mark's letter is all about. Because Mark, as you remember, is a gospel of action, <laughs> He moves. I mean, he's just bam, bam, bam. He he doesn't mess around. He kind of reminds me of another Mark I know (laughs) when he's teaching. (laughs) He doesn't fool around. He just goes 90 miles an hour. This is Mark right sitting right over here. If you've ever been here on a Wednesday night, we've had Mark teach a few times. And boy, when when we got done with prayer time and said, Mark, okay. And he got up and it's like a machine gun, boy. He just let her fly. And uh, that's kind of like how Mark is here. He didn't mince any words. He just let it go. Why did he write this gospel? Well, he doesn't tell us. (laughs) Now, John, you remember, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he told us why he wrote his gospel. But Mark doesn't indicate in so many words, just why he wrote this gospel. But you have sort of an indication, maybe, in the very first verse. And that's because when you look at the the phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll note in the Greek text that there's no article there. He's simply starting out about with the good news about Jesus Christ. You know, he doesn't worry about that at all. He's not concerned with that. And some think that that's even just a title, a superscription that goes above the, above the gospel. He says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, gospel, we all know, just means the good news, the good message, the glad tidings, about this one, Jesus 
the Christ, the Son of God. Why is that all so significant? Well, you ever, you know, if you just go back one gospel to Matthew's gospel and look at Matthew chapter 1, notice something interesting there in the very first verse of Matthew's gospel. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You notice the similarities. But now notice the dissimilarity. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Who of all people would identify with the phrases, the son of David and the son of Abraham? But a Jew. That was his target audience. That's who he's writing to, Jews. But that's not what Mark said. He used the phrase, the son of God. Which we find in this gospel seemed to be Jesus' favorite expression to use concerning himself. The son of man, the son of God. So in this, even in this very first verse, we find that you know, Mark is setting forth something that points in every way towards Gentile readers. And that's been a common understanding of Mark's gospel since early in the second century. That's a long time. We're going to get through this, believe me. We're going to get through it. <laughs> Next week we get into the text a little more deeply. But let's, let's close with this one thought. I stated earlier that based on Acts chapter 12, and of course there are other things that we could have looked at, like 1 Peter 5, 13, uh, concerning Peter's relationship. Well, I guess we ought to look at that probably. Okay. 1 Peter 5.13, just so we know. In verse 13, it says, She who is in Babylon greets you, uh, or excuse me, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, a couple things to note here. If you were in our Wednesday night Bible study where we just finished um, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and in looking at 2 John, it talked about the elect lady, the chosen lady. And some think that this is an individual woman, others that it's a cryptic name for the church. You know, if you take what Mark says, I had a lie. Let's go over there to Second John. Look at Second John chapter one, or the only chapter. And look at the first verse there. And try to put some things together here. Notice he says, to the elect lady, to the chosen lady. Then you come back here to 1 
Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you greets you. Now that taken together, this looks like cryptic terminology for the local church that was in Rome. Not the literal city of Babylon, but probably the church that was in Rome. Greets you, and then so does Mark, my son. So notice how intimate and close Peter regarded Mark in his relationship. Well, coming back then to close this out for this, for today, um, <clears throat> going back to Matthew chapter 16, And we're still thinking here about Mark's emphasis on, in verse 1, about his phrase concerning Jesus Christ, not of the son of David, the son of Abraham, but as the son of God. And if he was indeed one who sat under the ministry of Peter, as all things seem to indicate, then that might give us a, a, a fuller explanation in Mark sixteen sixteen of Peter's confession, which evidently, I would say, Mark probably heard on some occasion. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Was Peter familiar, or excuse me, was Mark familiar with Peter? Was he knowledgeable concerning the things that Peter taught? Well, evidently so. And I think that what we want to find then as we go through this gospel that, you know, Peter was somebody who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, um, not in the same kind of connection that the apostles did, but he certainly knew the apostles and those associated with them in a very close and intimate fashion. In other words, he was kind of like one of the inner circle in the sense of he knew what was going on in the early church. He had a firsthand acquaintance with the teachings of the gospel from the apostles themselves and probably Peter in particular. But it says there in Acts 12, evidently he knew the apostle James. And Peter said, and the brethren, whoever else that might have included, maybe some of the other apostles for all we know. I don't know. But all I'm saying is, is that this account that Peter gives to us concerning the Son of God, the Son of the living God, is an account which should be, for people like you and I as Gentiles, you know, ought, ought to be very explicit to us as well. Something that would grab our attention. Something that would point us as those who are unacquainted with, and I'm, I'm talking about now evangelistically speaking, if I was just, you know, a common Joe that I was somebody was giving the gospel to, 
that was unacquainted with Jewish culture and Jewish terminology. This would be a kind, the kind of place that you would want to take them to and say, look, this is what we need to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do want to thank you for what you've given us in this gospel. And I pray that as we entertain it and move into a a, a deeper study of it, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be stirred. I pray that we, we would be drawn to the truths that are here. I pray that the mindset of Mark himself, as he recorded these words, would be meaningful to us. And I pray, Father, that we would be very, very conscious of the message that he intended to portray to those people in Rome to whom he was writing. Not just the church in Rome, but as an evangelist to those that he wanted to hear the gospel. Let us enter into this, I pray, with an open mind to see those things and let the Spirit of God direct us and lead us And we'll give you all the thanks and praise for what you do for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.